Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast with John and Hannah. Hi. We're doing another friend or foe Friday, but we've decided to change the book we're using this week just to do something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at the Castles and Crusades classic monsters and treasure. Now, for those of you who don't know, Castles and Crusades is a system derived from D&D, and it's published by Troll Lord Games. And I'm quite a big fan of the system. Up until recently, I was running a game of it. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that classic Monsters and Treasure book. This isn't the, the sort of core monster manual for their sister. However, as it says on the back, monsters abound. They litter the halls of our collective imaginations like so much debris. Wandering monsters, lead beasts, play walkers, horrid thoughts that linger upon the edge of adventure. Classic monsters and treasures unearths a host of them, collected from various sources from the early days of tabletop role-playing. Classic monsters and treasure is a must-have, adding more than 120 monsters to your evening's game of castles and crusades. We're going to have a look at this, we're going to randomly pick a monster from it, and then we're going to see if we can find it in some of our other books, do a bit of a compare and contrast, and talk about how you could possibly use it in your game. Okay, Hannah, so why don't you roll the big D30 and we'll see what we get. Eleven. Okay, so the eleventh letter is a K. There are three monsters in here listed under K. So, so what I'll find is a D6. Maybe. Three. That's okay. the last one. It is the Corred. So let's have a quick look in here and see what it says about the Corred. Okay, so according to Castles and Crusades, Classic Monsters and Treasure, the Corred are a race of wild, unpredictable fae that live in great pastures that dominate the landscape. By day they sleep in tall grass, but at night they become active. They care little for the civilised ways of the world. They are chaotic, rowdy and border on barbaric. They've got a great love for food and drink, but a passion for music and dance. They're about three feet in height, resembling dwarves from the waist up. And from the waist down, they have the legs of a goat. So sort of like a satyr, which if I remember correctly, although they're listed as a separate monster in here, originally they were a sort of derivative of satyr. That would be why I can't find them under K for Corred. Yeah, they are. There we go. So what does the second Ed AD&D Monster Manual say about them, love? So, uh, on this page it's obviously mostly satire because that's how it works with the AD&D Yeah, manual. you get like the, the main species is covered by most of it and then you just get like a little sort of couple of paragraphs about any sub-races and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you've got your basic description of a satire, obviously goat man, little horns, and then you've got... The Corred, which are, as with some of the other stuff we've looked at, like a levelled up version of the Satyr. Uh, they've got much higher charisma, much higher strength. They can weave their hair into entangling ropes and snares. Well, that's quite interesting. It, whilst it doesn't say anything about that in the classic Monsters and Treasure, it does mention they have great strength and they have like a charm ability. Which is, I presume, you know, representing the high charisma and stuff like that. Yeah, these have got a magical laughter effect. Mm. 
and can also use the following abilities at will. Stone Shape, Animate Rock, Stone Door, Teleport up to 30 feet, Shatter Rock, Transmute Rock to Mud, and Stone Tell. Well, they've certainly got a lot more magical abilities in the AD&D 2nd Edition Monster Manual. In in here, they're basically just... They're, they're charming. They can Their charm ability takes the form of dancing. Any creature charmed will be charmed as long as they sing, which can last for up to 3d6 turns. And they get great strength, so they do, like, plus 4 damage, and they get plus 4 on any strength check. That's about it for their um, abilities in here. Mm-hmm. So the very last thing on the page is one of these things that I think would probably cause problems with a lot of the player groups that I've played with. All right, okay. Or at least is one of those sort of things that you get in D&D monsters that just seem like weird and nonsensical and why even bother putting it in there. So the Corred carry these little pouches and the pouches contain hair, shears and other items. These items turn to gold if sprinkled with holy water. Okay, they will not weird. voluntarily give up the power. So, thinking back to those games that I played in high school and how there were some kids who literally knew this book by heart. If you put one of them in your game with those kids, they would go, oh, that's how I get the treasure. Uh, and they would instantly ignore all else that's in there. And it just seems to be kind of pointless. Like, why, why put it in there? Because if he's not going to give you his pouch, then you may as well just put some gold coins in there and let the players rob him if yeah, they're sh- going sh- to. Yeah, surely it may as well just be covered under the standard, like, treasure you'd find from any yeah. monster you kill. It, it does it's... seem a bit weird they've mentioned it specifically. It's just such an odd thing. I wonder if it's something to do with the, like, old mythology. You see, now, I, I can... I could see if you were going for sort of like that, like Fey, like Rumpelstiltskin vibe, you know, where they can like spin like rubbishy items into gold and whatever, and they like trick people into making promises. Then later on, you're like, oh no, it's just like a handful of flowers. It's not gold, and I've sold my, my prize cow for some flowers or whatever. But just having them have something that's like, literally turns to gold, but they won't give up, it just seems a bit of a weird thing to me. Mm-hmm. And that's specifically mentioned for the Corrid, is it, or is that? Yeah, it, it's like the last bit of the paragraph about them. That's weird. <laughs> now, Classic I've just been... AD&D. Yeah, I've just... Yeah, there's some idiosyncratic monsters in there. I've just been looking through the 5th edition monster manual while you're checking that, and it doesn't have anything about Corrid specifically as a, a sub-race, but obviously they do have satyrs covered, and they're pretty much your standards of the hedonistic goat man. Um, they, they can ram people with their horns. They have a bit of magic resistance. They're medium fake creatures. They've got a short sword and a short bow. And then there's a little variant sort of sidebar where it says a satyr might carry panpipes. It can play to create magical effects. And basically this is the version of the charming. They get two sort of different things they can do, different magical effects they can do. They can play a charming melody, which charms someone for a minute. Sorry, three effects. They can play a frightening strain, where they can frighten someone for a minute. Or they can play a gentle lullaby, where someone falls unconscious for one minute. So, I'm curious now as to the charm effect, because reading it in the second Ed book, it it does look a bit 1980s. Um, You know when the phrase uh, includes... Comely females, charisma 15 plus. Y- you know you're probably on dodgy 1980s ground. Yeah, now, I mean, <laughs> that, that, not not to excuse our anything, because I agree, oh. that, that sounds dodge as. But 
again, in the original mythology... Oh, yeah, yeah, satyrs are well, well dodged in that respect. I'm just curious as to how it's been updated. Um, how, how do they select who they're charming? Because in this, it's pretty much, if your character's female and got charisma 15+, plus, they're going to try and charm them. Otherwise, as long as you're not offensive, they'll sleep you. If you're hostile, they'll cause fear. Well, I think from looking at the 5th edition book just then, I think the way they've decided to deal with this is by the time on a tradition of not dealing with it and just not giving any specifics to how they, to who they charm. So I think it's pretty much down to like the GM as far as 5th edition is concerned. But Which they, is a far more sensible approach. To yeah, take. you're on far less dodgy <laughs> ground. But yeah, they, they still have the, the charm, the fear and the sleep and whatever. But I think a lot of the a lot of the reason why AD and D first came about was um, after they did sort of basic D and D. Everyone house ruled it. Everyone played it different. And I know I've read in a few places when Gary Gygax first came up with AD and D, the idea was it was based for tournament play. So mm-hmm. they wanted to make it sort of watertight, mm-hmm. so that like if it didn't matter what country you're playing, and if you're playing AD and D, you're playing the same game. Of course, it didn't work, because as soon as everyone got it, they started house-rolling it again. <laughs> but one of the things I've noticed is, in AD&D, things tend to be a lot more specific. Like we're saying, with like the, mm. not, not just the charm thing there, but like a lot of things where they'll be like, oh, if this happens, then they'll use this ability. Whereas as time's gone on, I think there's been more emphasis on the GM having more choice about that. Mm-hmm. Which I quite like, because most people have at least a vague idea of what a satire is about. You know, they're sort of hedonistic goat men obviously very loosely in this sense based on Grecian and Roman mythology often linked to like the god Pan which I quite like the inclusion of like the magical Pan pipes in 5th edition that was a nice little nod these guys get Pan pipes as well I think it's just a prop to do their previous magic with yeah I mean the only thing I would say is a bit different in 5th edition is it's given as an optional thing so by default satyrs in fifth edition don't have these magical pan pipes it's like a bit of an upgrade to them mm-hmm. but whereas in there you've got in the um, ADD second edition monster manual you've got the satyr and the corred as like a sort of separate subdivision and as we've said before you see this a lot in the ADD monster manuals they'll offer you one creature and then they'll give you like an upgraded version or a slightly mm-hmm. tweaked version as like a little separate stat block you get maybe like a paragraph or something explaining the difference whereas in fifth edition they still do this a little bit but a lot of the times you tend there doesn't seem to be the emphasis on placing the strict division mm-hmm. between these subdivisions so you might get like an upgraded orc but it'll just be called like an orc warrior or like an orc bruiser or something like that it won't be like it's an entirely separate creature i don't know why they decided to do that but i think i prefer that to like having all these weird and wacky sort of variant races and stuff like that because it makes more sense to me that like oh yeah okay you've got you've got an orc just to give a random example i'm pulling out my house you've got an orc you've got some slightly bigger orcs you've got some orcs who use bows you've got some this that and the other whereas if every race is like oh yeah we've got like a a a related but like different race Mm -hmm. it, it starts to feel very crowded and also that's just my opinion you don't have to use all these races in your campaign world but it feels a little bit like a lot of them were sort of space fillers. Like they're like, oh, we've got a bit of space left on this page. What can we do? Uh, a variant with more hit points? <laughs> you know what I mean. See, I remember, again, the high school games with the AD&D. 
finding them kind of useful again with players who'd already memorized like most of the main monsters in the book it could give you a bit of a like skew to it mm. surprise them a little bit I've, but beyond that i can't really think of massive use for yeah, all I mean, the extras i've got to admit i i did find it useful when i first sort of started dming because i didn't really know as much about the system i hadn't mm-hmm. got the experience of different role-playing games whereas now because i'm more comfortable with that I'm quite happy to just go, oh, I can like modify a monster like this, or I'll give him a few more hit points, I'll give him like an ability or whatever, and do that on the fly. Whereas I think if you're a newer GM, it's a lot more handy to have these variant stat blocks, because rather than sitting there thinking, oh, I don't really know what to do, I want to make this monster a bit powerful, but how powerful is a bit powerful? I'm going to make it too bad. Whereas if you've got like a separate stat block that's like, oh, here's your orc bruiser. He's just mm-hmm. a slightly more powerful. You can just pull that straight out of the book and use it in your game. And you haven't got to worry. Someone else has sort of done that bit of the work for you, basically. Yeah, the extra stat blocks are always nice, whatever it is. Uh, and I've got a bit, I, know, I know I was sort of sceptical about the Corred saying it seemed like a bit of a space filler. But if you look at the, um, the AD&D Second Dead Monster Manual, the satire spread sort of covers a single A4 page. The Corred stuff's only like a couple of little paragraphs at the end, and the extra stat block doesn't really take up that much space. So, uh, and you certainly in the more modern monster manuals, you get monster write ups that go over more than one page. Oh, yeah. So, I do think they've made quite efficient use of the space in AD&D. Oh, absolutely. And again, when you're talking about potential tournaments with potential thousands of players, you do need all that stuff nailed down and if you then want people to be able to take the book home and go and play the same game which as you say was the original intention you need to have a lot of variation to it for them to be able to keep coming back to it okay now we we've said earlier on that obviously satyrs are sort of based on the god pan from mythology so do you want to grab our big dictionary of mythology off the shelf love lovely just prize it out from between my uh, copies of Hellbore magazine and my uh, English folktales book. And do send us a comment if you want to see photos of John in his satyr outfit from LARP. Indeed, I should tell you, I make a very fine satyr in the fluorescent pink dreadlocks. Although, to be honest, if, if you if you sort of correspond with me regularly and you've got me on Facebook, you've probably seen him anyway. <laughs> Satan, Saturan, satyr, here we go. Satyr. Some say that the satyrs were the sons of Hermes and the brothers of the nymph. The modern Greek Kalikanzini, I think, have many features of the ancient satyr. So, uh, god of the woodlands, part man, part goat, with a long tail, a fertility spirit. Yep. And obviously named for Saturn. Uh, Greek god. Uh... Yeah, they're also linked with the ancient Greek god Pan, god of the wild shepherds and flocks, nature, wilderness, mountains. Also gives his name to the the mood of panic. So although on one hand he was a bit of a jocular, sort of fun, happy-go-lucky, there was this whole darker, sort of debauched, sort of quite vile side to the god. Absolutely, um... Yeah, there's some very interesting statues of Pan from Pompeii. I'm sure anybody that's seen the one I'm alluding to would know what it is, but otherwise have a look for a statue called Pan's Goat. Indeed. (laughs) Now, I'm sure you can work out what that's a reference to, given that he's a fertility god, but obviously we won't go into details. 
But um, as we were saying with the satyrs, when we're looking in the dictionary of mythology, Pan's parentage is unclear, but generally is portrayed as a son of Hermes, although in some myths he's linked with Dionysus, who was a god of wine, which is obviously appropriate, and it's linked with wood nymphs and things like that. And there's a lot of famous myths about Pan chasing after different nymphs and pursuing people. You know, Greek myth stuff. <laughs> Indeed. And one of the myths is that he pursued the the nymph Syrinx, daughter of Ladon, the river god. As she was coming back from the hunt one day, he met her, and to escape from her, she ran away and didn't stop to hear what he was trying to say to her. He pursued her until he reached her sisters, who changed her into a reed. Because, you know, what other way could you possibly have of escaping him? Turn yourself into a plant. Why not? It's an ancient myth. When the air blew through the reeds, it produced this sort of mournful, plaintive melody. And... Pan, still infatuated with the nymph, took some of the reeds and fashioned those into the first pan pipes. And that's supposedly why he's linked with pan pipes. And that cascades down to the satyrs that are based on him. And as we've just been saying, in both AD&D and in 5th edition, those pan pipes are still present. So it's nice to see them still sort of linking back to that original mythology. So we've talked a bit about the Coreds and the satyr in mythology and how they're represented in AD&D 2nd edition, the 5th edition monster manual and the classic monsters and treasure for castles and crusades. But what ways do you think we could use them in a D&D campaign? So I don't know that I would, to be honest, simply because they tend to be quite sort of trickstery characters. Yeah. And I would not tend to want to use one as a direct villain. Yeah. And yet in D&D people do often get quite frustrated with these characters that cause some problems but then are like supposed to be a bit friendly as well. Um I don't think I could do it particularly well. Now we we as I've mentioned did a LARP game where we played satyrs. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a very different thing to a tabletop because most of what we were doing there was sitting around a campfire drinking singing songs that's what satyrs do we were having fun with it well yeah we and people could come and go and join well, yeah we, we sort of put like a we, we sort of focused on those particular aspects you know like the drinking and the singing and we sort of put like this light-hearted spin on it but as we've said earlier on there is very much this sort of darker side to that because whilst like this debauchery like i said drinking singing having fun is absolutely great when you sort of do it in like moderation and you know you're not harming anyone obviously if you abandon everything else and throw caution to the wind and you're just drinking all the time you're dancing all the time you're neglecting your other stuff you're not doing anything else but sort of debauchery it becomes a problem and especially as is depicted with pan several times in mythology if you come across someone and you're like oh come along and dance for me like join in with this debauchery and they're like no mate i'm good and you're like no you're going to join me in this debauch and you're pursuing them, that becomes much more problematic because then you, obviously you're trying to force your intentions on somebody else. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's neither a good nor a comfortable thing for many people, nor should it be, to be perfectly honest. Well, yeah, that, that is the point of the myth. I mean, I think if I was going to go for using one of these as like a villain rather than play up the trickster angle that you as you were talking about Mm -hmm. because i agree players can get really annoyed with tricksters i would play up that sort of 
villainous manipulator angle because how many times have we seen uh, a villain in something and they're they're like the cardinal Richler sort of style villain where they get other people to do their dirty work and they make other people think that it's what they wanted to do in the first place we see it with like uh, Iago in Shakespeare's Othello he, he takes uh, a couple who are very much in love and he twists so twists Othello round his finger that at the end he becomes absolutely convinced that his wife is cheating on him, despite an entire lack of evidence. It ends up strangling his wife, killing Giago, and then, if I remember correctly, killing himself. And that's all because of the villain's manipulations. So you're seeing your satire as being more like a sort of a head of a mobster family, yeah. almost. Well, th- think about it. What makes what makes an actual villain a villain? And I've said this a number of times. I don't believe that any villain wakes up and just sort of goes, oh, today I'm going to be evil. It's the fact that they want something that is like injurious or abhorrent to society in general. So a villain might it might seem quite reasonable, like I'm going to kill this person to get what I want. But the rest of society is like, no, you shouldn't just randomly murder somebody. That's what makes them villainous. So if you've got this satyr who's like, Oh, I think everyone should make me Lord of the fucking dance and like anyone who doesn't agree with me is gonna get dealt with, that can be like quite a sort of horrible villain. And let's say we've talked about um, villains that manipulate people, and they've not got the ability to like charm people and supernatural abilities and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, you could quite happily have like a, a sort of satire, like head of like a criminal organisation or someone like that. It's like he's pushing people's buttons and he's he's manipulating them to do what he wants, so that in the end he'll get his goal of like removing the people who are interfering with his good time. Because at the end of the day, the satire is quite a sort of selfish figure. Because as long as they're having fun, they're getting to laugh and they're getting enjoyment, they're not bothered about anybody else. The only reason they're even vaguely concerned with other people is as sort of bit players to their own drama. So if if they're pursuing you, it's not because they're bothered about what you want, it's because they want to pursue you and possess somebody. So I think they could certainly be used for, for that sort of thing. Well, I'm sold on the idea, John. When are you running your Victoriana mobster game with the, like, satyr who's a man of respect... Now, I think that could actually be like a really good idea for a game. Now, I'm not saying I will run it, and certainly a satyr wouldn't be my first choice for a villain, but I think it could be interesting because it's not what people would expect. Because how many games have you played in where like, the, the villains turn out to be a satyr? Bizarrely, their abilities do really support. I mean, I think based on what we've got in there, they're strong. They, they've got that whole like headbutting thing they can do with their horns. They're obviously intelligent. They can charm people. They can put people to sleep. They can make people scared of them. How do you get at them when they can either make you their best mate, they can make you run away, or they can just put you to sleep and slit your throat or just mm-hmm. leave? What do you do against somebody like that? So I could, I could generally see... Uh, a group of NPCs who might not be able to overcome that, trying to hire in your band of adventurers or whatever, and be like, look, oh, this this like crazy man's like taken over like the old castle up on the hill, and like all the villagers are stuck there, and they've been up there for like weeks, just like dancing their tits off, and like no one can get up there to do anything about it. I've sent five messengers up there, none of them have come back, so they have to hire the adventurers. I could see that being a really fun, interesting adventure. And to be honest, I'd actually quite like to write an adventure like that, but I don't know whether I'll get around to it. But I love the idea of a satire as a villain. Quality. Pandrino. I'll, I'll quit bugging <laughs> you about it. Okay, so that's been our episode about 
the satyr and the corred as sub-race of the satyr. We hope that's given you some ideas of how you could possibly use them in your games. And if you go online and type in pan or satyr, there's lots of different research available online. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can leave us a message using the SpeakPipe website. There's a link in the description of this show. Or you can send us an email. The address is podcast at gmail.com. Until we see you next time, take care, stay safe, and happy gaming. Bye. Some... Start again. Well, the neighbours finished moaning at the dog. I'm sold on the idea. When are you running this like steampunk game where we're fighting the mobster satyrs? Oh, sorry, sorry, love, you've <laughs> you've lost me. You've obviously not been paying attention to me online, and you don't know my my much publicised aversion to any game that describes itself as something punk. Oh, I do apologise. When are you running your Victoriana sat? Uh, that's, that's more like uh, it. Let me let me start that again then. When are you running? <laughs>